I mean, what do you do? The company's got cash. If it gives it to you, you've got the hot potato and you need to somehow get rid of it before you lose money. But if the company keeps the cash, well, that's even worse because now they've got the hot potato. So you want and a company that makes no cash but will make cash You want in the a future. company that's losing money today. That's absolute ipso facto QAD or whatever you want to call it. That's what you want. Started during lockdown, needed something to do. Talking to you, and so from a garden shed in a box room in West London, they're discussing tech. It's the Small Time Bets podcast. This is interesting because this is the first interview that we've done. This is episode fifty-seven of of the Small Time Bets podcast, and we've never actually done an interview with a guest before. So, yeah, congratulations, you are first. <laughs> oh no, well, very honoured, Jonathan. Uh, it's a, a fantastic show. Do you want to give a bit of background about who you are and anything that explains your background? Sure. No, so I'm Andrew Hamilton. I've been living in London now for about 20 years. I've been working in the financial services industry for probably crying, <laughs> probably a bit longer than I uh, than I care to admit, probably about 16 years now. So I'm not sure if it's one super cycle or a few minor cycles that I've been in the market over, but that's that's a fair amount of time and uh, and sort of yeah and very interested in in the topics you cover in in the show tech crypto and and, and the markets more generally so really happy to be sort of invited on and, and happy to share my thoughts yeah you and i have had a lot of debates over the years and um it was interesting i really wanted to get you on the show at some point to talk about some of the theories and predictions that you've made in the past and it feels like right now is the perfect time because I have realized some stuff that you've said to me in the last couple of years and I've brushed off and said oh you're kind of barking at the wrong tree being red extreme you know a lot of that's starting to come to pass so I wanted to ask you your first question what is your macro take on the market right now and second question as a follow-up, sort of what what do you think happens from here? What's your prediction for the next, you know, two quarters? No, well, I think in terms of the macro position, I mean, it's an interesting one. I think we have been in a very sort of interesting period of time. And is that in the last sort of six months, two years or, or 15 years? You know, I think to, to my mind, where we are at the moment is maybe the culmination of what has been something of a super cycle. I think, you know, the broad market themes that have sort of played out and where money has been made is in sort of taking the view rates will get lower than we thought they could go. (laughs) And the fed will do more than people ever thought was possible. And to sort of the left of the stage, you know, whether it's on screen or off screen, the sort of ECB and, and the Japanese central bank have been going absolutely bonkers, doing even sort of more than the Fed, to be honest. So, you know, when you look at that and you think, well, everybody that's taken the view that the Fed can do more, rates can go lower, money can get easier, what will happen in that scenario? Certain prices will go up and people have piled in and and people have been making a lot of money. And that's been the narrative since probably 2007 2008 since the financial crisis and 
I think, you know, it, it, different markets have been in vogue at different times, but anybody that sort of stood in the in the way of that train was pulverized. And, you know, we've only had to just, you can just see if you look at where share prices were at sort of 2000 and, you know, forget 2009 when, when markets crashed, but a couple of years after that, 2011, 2012, when things were pretty normal, we weren't in recession, mm-hmm. unemployment wasn't very high. And, you know, since then, it's just, it, you know, I think the S&P has, you know, almost trebled something like that you know so what, what what's happened it's really been that sort of financial condition so i guess what are we seeing at the moment then in, in a macro view is that changing is this you know one more bump in the road where the fed's going to come to the rescue more money will be printed and you know prices will just carry on getting higher or is this is this is this time different as, as people say in the markets? And I guess my take on things would be what we are seeing at the moment is is some fear um, mm. or some expectation that maybe interest rates will go up, maybe the monetary environment will will get more difficult, and people really sort of reacting to that, looking to get out of of maybe really overbought positions, things like maybe Tesla sort of come down a lot obviously crypto has, has come down a lot hasn't completely crashed tesla hasn't crashed now it's sort of six times where it was when people still thought it was hmm. massively overvalued a couple of years ago so these assets are still you know richly valued but they're not as frothy as, as they were and i think what we are seeing is maybe some more reality hitting valuations and that I would say maybe call is maybe phase one because all we've seen so far is people expecting monetary conditions to sort of not be as easy. Mm. I think where do we go from here? And it's hard to say where we go in the next two quarters, but I think one of two things will happen. One is things will get a bit easier. Inflation might come down or inflation expectations come down. People think they've kind of got this under control. Interest rates won't go above sort of two, three percent, you know, this is manageable. Actually, where valuations are is not totally crazy. And things may be settled down. But we can maybe come to, to, to what might happen in that scenario in a moment. But the alternative is that over the next six months, people think, actually, they haven't got this under control. Mm. Inflation is maybe getting higher or inflationary expectations are sort of un, untethered. Companies really start to find it difficult to manage their operations, you know, higher prices, higher wages, and you get a combination, which always happens in a recession, of operating performance being impacted by market conditions and economic conditions. So, you know, profits are down and profit expectations are down. And at the same time, you've got inflationary expectations going up. And therefore, you know, people think actually the cost of money is going to go up. And I, it's that's a horrific combination of things so people may really sort of rush for the exits and markets could get very choppy indeed so i think one of those two scenarios will play out whether that adds a lot of value i don't know but i think what is certainly going to be the case is that a lot of companies that don't generate their own cash flow Mm -hmm. whether they're sort of large or small in you know maybe new sectors of the economy but maybe some old sectors of the economy but companies that have been sort of existing by raising money getting investors on board very cheaply and spending what they're not making to, you know to, to grow but those companies will find things more difficult because mm. people may still be willing to provide them and i'm thinking of people like klarna here 
who you know laying off 10 percent of their workforce maybe people like some sort of venture capital you know crypto businesses which you know are not are maybe paying their staff in not in crypto <laughs> they're paying them in dollars but but regardless you're not so right they're not making them necessarily the profits that mm. they might have been expecting or, or maybe long-term vision so those companies are going to need to sort of keep uh, well we're going to have to raise money in a very difficult environment and some of them won't be able to do that and to the extent they're not really, you know, they may well be insolvent and maybe companies that are still able to raise money like i'm, I'm sure klarna would be are going to be a bit more judicious in what they spend it on. Mm. You know, the, sort of the growth projects, the initiatives might sort of fall away. And, you know, maybe they focus more on their core business and in a lower cost base. But again, none of it points to strong economic growth and positive trading statements and and a really positive market backdrop. So I, I sense that a theme that will emerge over the next six months is maybe more, more sort of recessionary type talk, mm. which we're starting to get. And, you know, companies much more focused on conserving cash than on distant growth rates. That's interesting. You mentioned a little bit about options for inflation. And I'm curious because um, I've been struggling a lot with the whole inflation narrative because I was kind of in denial at one point that we would see sustained levels of inflation, that it would kind of start to bake itself in psychologically. And then because of supply chain issues and oil price and war in Ukraine and everything else, that narrative seems pretty locked in. But in a world where we're seeing, you know, initially asset inflation, which you could argue we saw during the pandemic, and now kind of CPI or consumer inflation, it still feels like holding cash is the best thing to do because everything else is dropping. So tech stocks, crypto, uh, even gold, I don't know, has, has whether it's actually performed as well as people would often hope it would so what what do you do in a world where you have a recession and you have high levels of inflation i mean i think that's that's a, a great question i mean well i think holding cash is always a good option but over longer periods of time it's it's a bad option mm. because you know anybody that's held cash for a long period of time has probably regretted it if they're an investor but i think you know that as sort of as, as a side point points to the sort of almost perverse incentives in our sort of current untethered monetary system where pretty much everything's geared towards printing more money and easing financial sort of conditions which means that if you have cash you're almost forced into a market of some sort you know thinking of an you know maybe an old age pensioner or you know the widow yeah. children and orphans etc no one can just sort of say well actually you know i've got a nest egg here you know say 100 grand that's a decent sum that should sort of get me through a few years in retirement or pay the kids university fees whatever it might be you know you can't really think 20 30 years ahead you'd have to invest it in something and i guess this is you know the backdrop that we're in that people talk about financialization etc but money in in that sense is almost isn't quite isn't maybe worth what it should be in a longer term perspective so having said that so what what could one do in this environment i think be very cautious i think would be well because the euphoria seems to be coming out of the market it's better time to buy than it was six months ago clearly but you know if there's a recession and there's inflation if you only have to look at the sort of 70s and 80s to see that the stock markets could tread water for very, very many years at a time, to the extent people just felt, you know, investing in the stock market is a waste of time. Mm. And I think we've been 
we've been in a period where almost so long now that people just can't imagine a period where the stock market isn't always just going up and up and up. Yeah, yeah. And if it does fall, well, this is this is the moment to get back in. It could be. Why isn't it the case that it just does nothing for twenty years? It's happened in Japan forever. <laughs> you know, I mean, why? It's in the UK. Stock market's done nothing. Frankly, no, that's true. Um, that's true. It's twenty years. A US phenomenon, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, maybe we're at the start of, of a pretty boring and dismal period for the stock market. It's just going to tick along and, and, and tick down for a period. Maybe we don't see a huge crash, you know, but but I think we keep coming back to the fact that with the inflation coming in, things are just maybe going to be a bit different from here than they have been for the last 15 years. If you're a central banker right now, what are your options? Well, I think they're more difficult than they were. 10 years ago or five years ago or 15 years ago i mean the problem they've got now is and i think stepping back a bit when you sort of look back at you know the 1960s or 70s and you know you look at the history books nobody was expecting 20 percent inflation no one was expecting you know when they came off the gold standard in 1971 they felt you know it's like a one-time 10 percent adjustment to interest to uh effectively the, the the exchange rate to get a bit more competitive against Germany and Japan. You know, it wasn't really meant to be a sort of 50-year inflationary bonanza, uh, which is what it turned out to be. It was no one saw the inflationary train on, on the horizon. And when you hear people, when you hear the politicians rather and, and, and the central bank talking, I love, no, they never talk about inflation. I mean, this is one thing I've noticed in the last six months that there hasn't been any inflation there's just been a cost of living oh, yeah, uh, yeah. problem which uh, <laughs> who knows but which completely removes sort of the monetary policy from 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 center stage but the thing that interests me in terms of the response to the inflation in the UK firstly no one talks about inflation they're sort of commenting about cost of living which you know is interesting but secondly the response has been this is a cost of living crisis. People don't have enough money to pay their fuel bills and their heating bills and all the rest of it. And that's clearly true for, for many people. And they're saying, well, the government needs to do something. Mm. And that is seemingly print more money <laughs> to pay for fuel credits. And you think, well, you know, that may or may not be a good idea, but can nobody sort of maybe consider that that will be inflationary, that maybe you've not learned the lesson of the last 15 years that and frankly the last two years uh, again it's very interesting that we've had the, the the pandemic the covid pandemic which nobody seems to talk about now it, it's completely gone from the, the public the, consciousness yeah and, things have just knocked it off the yeah, radar haven't they what, what was that um, but the money printed and the, the deficits that the government's ran which was all you know sort of financed by the central bank I mean, just unprecedented. You know, not even in wartime have we seen the kind of deficits that that were seen then. And it's it's just it's unimaginable. I mean, the UK, I think UK incomes went up eight percent in the first year of COVID, and that was pure deficit financing. So, again, you look at that and you say, well, that may be inflationary. And then, sort of two years later, we get the highest inflation we've had for forty years. And it's again, it's very instructive. No one really is making the link between the sort of financial response to covid and 
or rather the monetary policy response to COVID and the inflation we're getting today. And I guess given that, it could be the case that if, if that was what's leading the inflation today, the response to what's happening today, which seems to be more government spending, it kind of tells you that the people in charge are not really the ones to sort of deal with it. Well, out of interest, what do you think in the UK of the, the windfall taxation on energy companies? Because that would be a non-money printing way of doing it. And actually, that it actually falls more in line with like modern monetary theory responses to this. And I'm, I'm just curious what you think. No, I mean, it's, it's an interesting one. And you've got to applaud them that there's a sort of a pretense of uh, balancing the books. But I think probably... It, I find it fascinating in the sense it seems to be completely uncontroversial. Nobody seems to oppose yeah. it. <laughs> Not even which, some of the energy companies, which is um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's just a, a win, a winning all round. <laughs> so, and that's you kind curious. of think, if, well, it doesn't suggest that they'll, they'll sort of think twice for taxing people again when something else happens or, or another set of prices go up. But I think for me, again, classically, you know, do energy companies just want to pay out all their money in dividends? No. Most of what they do with their money is, is invest it mm. in finding new sources of energy and getting more efficient, etc. All of which should, over time, reduce energy costs. Mm. You know, call me you know a sort of rabid free marketeer, but taking money away from energy companies is probably not going to help them produce mm. more energy and lower their costs. Is that controversial? I don't know. Is it? I don't know. Maybe I, and, and I, guess I, maybe a- I can't help myself. There's a flip side, which is then taking it away from energy companies where it would either go into the companies or to shareholders or something and giving it back to people in the form of subsidised energy costs probably is a good way to contribute towards inflation, right? Because it, it maintains the the demand side that would otherwise... Yeah, and it restricts the yeah. supply side. You're absolutely right. I mean, again, it's... Yeah. It's hard to say that people struggling to, you know, keep their Yeah, exactly. There's a kind of like, yeah, there's extremes. But I guess in terms of addressing that, is there a lot you can do other than sort of giving the money? I don't know. But Mm. again, what we haven't seen is is a real effort at balancing the books. You know, apparently there's quite a lot of loopholes in this windfall tax and it's probably more politics than economics, but... For me, the, the idea, again, it's sort of these companies, you know, there's sort of 20, 30, 40 year investment sort of horizons. And I mean, maybe they just shrug their shoulders because they are thinking so long term. But, you know, the idea that you sort of invest in this project through sort of thick and thin, all sorts of different energy cycles. And then the minute things are sort of looking good for you, mm. then wham, you know, there's the you're sort of taxed. It, it doesn't really make a lot of sense from a it's a strange precedence, right? <laughs> that, that's why I was curious on your thoughts on it. Like you said, is it repeatable? Is that the mechanism to solve problems in future that's uncontroversial? Well, you can't do it to all business sectors, right? Because people... Well, will maybe you can. Uh, <laughs> maybe this is the start. <laughs> Wait till... I mean, I don't know. Maybe... I don't know what prices will go up next. Furniture prices go up and... <laughs> you know, it's going to be an Ikea tax. I mean, you, you heard it here first. Um <laughs> But there'll be a Tesla tax for electronic cars going up. I mean, it, it's, it just prints itself. Um, I wanted to ask you, to conclude this whole like market sentiment piece, what did you think about Elon's email and the Tesla layoffs that just came out today? 
it, it's an interesting one. I mean, I, I mentioned Klarna earlier, cutting sort of 10% of their mm-hmm. workforce. And, you know, then Tesla seems to be coming out and, and doing that. I mean, the fact is, these cars are very expensive. I mean, we're talking about inflation. I mean, you can probably tell me how much does a sort of, if I wanted to go and drive a Tesla next Wednesday, what, what would it cost me? And the base one's around $40,000. So what's um, that about? About twenty eight thousand. Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's more like like thirty thirty five. Oh, I tell a lie. Electric cars have gone up so much. Base price forty two thousand five hundred for a Model Three in the UK. Well, there's bring on the Tesla tax. But (laughs) well, I don't know how much profit they actually make from each car. (laughs) I don't think it's that. I don't think it's a crazy amount. Jonathan, there's a lot of people think they don't make any profits, but we won't go. We won't have a Tesla episode, I suggest. But, but no, I think. But you know, these are the guys selling what are quite expensive cars. You know, luxury cars, you could call them. And you know, if we are heading into a bit of a recession, where financial conditions are not great, people can't borrow as much, and there's a bit more unemployment, and people haven't got as much money, is that a good outlook for Tesla? I mean, you can look at the long term where everyone will be driving electric cars and they've got the the biggest battery factory whatever it is that f- people think they're great at great you know that maybe that narrative's still there but but to get to that you've got to get through this recessionary narrative which is probably not going to be good for them so i think that that's the sort of thing we're talking about that's that's where a company's probably going to have a bit of a sort of classic recessionary headwind that it has to react to and that's that that can't be good for its share price it's and it, it can't be good for its its sort of cash position and its sort of balance sheet. You know, Tesla's going to be able to raise money, but if it needs to raise sort of more money than you might have expected to get through a situation like that, people probably will give give them less good terms they would have done sort of two years ago if the money was to be sort of to build a new factory in China to corner that market. So it's those sort of narratives, I think, that are going to maybe play out in the next couple of years. But So interesting enough with Tesla, I'm just definitely having a look on, um, on TradingView. Believe it or not, Tesla is down nearly 44% from its all-time highs that were back in November last year, which for any other company would be an insane fall from grace. But actually, it's still up almost like 7x since March 2020 <laughs> so it's a kind of weird like I, I, very difficult to make sense of um Tesla share price to be entirely honest oh, um I mean the the Tesla share price and I think this really sums up everything we're talking about Jonathan I think for me the Tesla share price should be on the front cover of any sort of markets valuation textbook because and we, we've had this conversation before, you know, what is fundamental value? Mm. You know, can you really just apply a sort of multiple on profits and say, well, that's how much a company should be worth and, you know, maybe argue over, around the edges. And I think what Tesla is, is it's a response to a demand for very large, very volatile assets that are sort of cash negative today and may or may not be very cash positive in a period in the future. And what, what do we mean by that? I think classically, as you know, you sort of look at how much is the company worth and you say, well, it's making, I don't know, 100 million a year in profits today. Interest rates are 5%. How much cash is this company going to make in the next 20 years? And you sort of discount that by what you could get in the bank mm. at a 5% interest rate. And, you know, it's 
pretty straightforward you know and the question is well how much money will it make next year and is it going to grow five percent is it going to grow two percent you know not straightforward but you can kind of get to an upper and lower bound of, of valuation and what tesla has done or, or what what it's been a response to is when interest rates sort of went to zero and when more importantly almost they went negative in a sort of negative <laughs> interest rate world where the discount rate is let's say it's negative well a company that's making cash today is is a liability to you because <laughs> they <laughs> exactly it's, yeah it's an opposite it's, world it's um, a it's a alice in wonderland world we're in but but literally i mean what do you do the company's got cash if it gives it to you you've got the hot potato and you need to somehow <laughs> get rid of it before you lose money but if the company keeps the cash, well, that's even worse because now they've got the hot potato. <laughs> so you want and a company that makes no cash but will make cash in the future. You want a company that's losing money today. <laughs> that's absolute ipso facto QAD or whatever you want to call it. That's what you want. And But, of course, at some point, <laughs> you're shelling out $100 for the shares. You kind of want to see the $100 back. That's the whole point of this exercise. So... The whole idea is, well, what I want is a company that's definitely not going to make any money this year, probably not going to make money next year, maybe won't make the money the year after that, but in sort of a distant future when your grandchildren are around, possibly that kind of time frame, this company might be making more money than any other company in the world. And what you that now have is rather than, <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. What you have is rather than a sort of a share of of cash flows today you've got an option on cash flows in the future and i guess what does tesla do it trades like an option you know it's up seven times down half that's kind of what you might think an option on what next year's you know orange juice futures might do and that's that's what says and actually when i say what tesla is is almost it's supply and demand people need assets like tesla when you have interest rates at zero percent because you don't need assets that are throwing off cash predictably and i think when i look back at the 2008 financial crisis the thing that struck me is clearly you know clo cds all these things were sort of you know quote marks to blame but where do they come from (laughs) you know and i think the most cogent analysis of that crisis really said, well, after the Asian financial crisis, you know, 97, 98, a lot of sovereign wealth funds and, and the sort of central banks of these emerging market economies, rather than letting their currencies float, fixed their currencies and built up huge, huge dollar balances, what you call the sort of reserves. Mm. And those reserves sort of flowed back into the US and, and the UK and Europe. But they had to flow back in, you know, they had to invest in safe assets. You know, you can't have Chinese central banks not going to buy maybe shares in Tesla, certainly not in 2005. So you had this huge inflow of dollars back into the US looking for AAA assets. Mm. And of course, at that time, the US deficit wasn't very large. You didn't have a huge amount of AAA assets around. So supply and demand, Wall Street turned around and created the required AAA assets with CLOs and CDOs. And that's where ultimately the money and the demand for these assets was coming from. 
you know, it wasn't like they were just invented out of nowhere and sold to people out of nowhere. It was a clear response to a, a very rapid, sizable demand for AAA assets that couldn't be met from the traditional sources. And I guess let's look at Tesla. Let's look at some of the other sort of stock market situations we've had in crypto and other assets in the last few years. And they've traded like options because that's really what the markets have demanded. Interesting, Tate. I'd never thought of, of Tesla or highly volatile stocks as options, but actually makes um, makes an interesting point. And then the options of, of Tesla stock would be just levered derivatives in, in that world. Hmm, it's kind of weird. Exactly. That's probably where where my financial advisors are putting on my pension. <laughs> Okay, um, that's a, probably a good, a good point to segue to my next question. So, um, yeah, you know, if I'm listening to podcasts, we normally have a, a segment that's all around this week in NFTs, and I I'm not a collector of physical paraphernalia or anything, but I have gotten very engrossed into the world of collecting digital things, things that take up no physical space but have a certain like scarcity or allure or, or collector value. But you and I have talked a lot about. Um, Rolexes and watches and and I knowing nothing about them when I spoke to you I was like geez these things are astronomically expensive and and actually behave in similar ways to what I'm witnessing in the NFT world so I wanted to ask you a little bit about you know your experience of luxury watches and the culture and community that's built around them. Sure Drummond I think that's um I mean it's it's a fascinating topic so well certainly for me in someone who's interested in in the markets generally and, and in what we're seeing in terms of inflation because having mm. a long-term interest in watches as, as a hobby and you know sort of loving the horology and, and the designs etc and always you know having enjoyed looking at at watches even from sort of a young age in the shops it's interesting to see just how the markets developed in tandem with some of these other markets we've touched on but you know, sort of stepping back a moment, I think what's been really interesting in the last few years is you've always had, you know, luxury watches as a very expensive item. Traditionally, a lot of people would buy them when they retired. They might be bought them as a gift from maybe when they qualify from university or, mm. or, or, or maybe get married. You know, it was, the, I guess, traditionally, these were big, expensive items that were marking a milestone in, in someone's life. And that was a sort of traditional market. And you always had collectors, people interested in unique pieces and certain watches will always go for lots of money at auction. You know, maybe they had a famous owner, maybe there's something particularly interesting about them in terms of they might be the first watch to use a certain movement or maybe they had a famous owner. Maybe they weren't many of them made, something like this. And, you know, like anything, anything that's collected, some things are more desirable than others and they'll fetch a rich price in, in, in an auction or something like that but sort of going from there to what we've seen in the last couple of years is is a huge shift and really what's been interesting is to, to my mind watches have moved from being a sort of a, a hobby with a community of collectors um, and enthusiasts to one where watches that now are more seen as a as maybe a finance or quasi financial asset and that's brought with it a lot of different different type of owners to the market a different type mm. of press and a different different type of community and um i think 
the thing that really is interesting is watches, particularly if you were to take Rolex as a sort of generic luxury brand, and they're probably unique in how they've sort of held their value over the years. And it's a, a brilliant brand that's marketed itself very well for, you know, a hundred years. And it's interesting that they're not owned, they're not, they're, they're a not-for-profit company. It's owned by a, a trust. So it's not sort of chasing, it's not, yeah, it doesn't chase short-term profits in that sense. It, it's family-owned, right? I thought, I thought it was all family-run, maybe. It was, it, no, it's, it's an interesting one. It's when the sort of founder passed away, he put the shares in trust oh. um, and the money, the profits it makes go to good causes, which is a nice thing as well. You know, it's good that, that oh, wow. such a successful business is able to do that. But and I think what makes that interesting is when you think of brilliant brands that just continually, the brand just gets stronger every year, mm. doesn't overproduce, doesn't sort of go into different markets, doesn't follow fads. You know, I think Rolex is a company like that. And it's interesting to see that actually it's not owned, it's not listed on the stock exchange, it's yeah. not owned by private equity. And it's really able to take that long-term approach, which, you know, I say it's paying dividends, but I'm not quite sure, you know, what the Swiss <laughs> yeah. laws will, will allow me to know. But it's certainly successful. But I think so, you know, you take Rolex as a brand and the thing that I guess really characterises its products is over time the watches sort of go up in value and that's you know you know anything about a rolex it's you buy it and in the future it's sort of worth more than you paid for it and that's a very nice thing to have as a brand you know people think they can buy your product and if their circumstances change in the future they can sort of get their money back it's it's reassuring and it sort of adds to the, the prestige but i think historically that was more seen as a sort of 5 10 15 year process but what's happening at the moment is, and it's pretty unprecedented actually, these watches, you know, Rolex is, is a brand particularly and other brands, you know, such as Patek Philippe or Audemars mm. Piguet, sort of Vacheron, Constantine, they are not really able to produce enough watches to satisfy the demand. And, you know, this is a recent thing, relatively. You know, they always have one or two models that maybe they just don't make enough of or there's particularly strong demand for. But... Across the whole range of, of Rolex, for example, and their sports watches, you, you cannot go into a shop and say, you know, can I buy one of your watches? You know, can I spend £10,000 on, on, on a watch? Because they won't have any in stock. And it's not even a case of them saying, well, maybe come back next week or, you know, we're getting a delivery on Tuesday. It's simply almost impossible for somebody to walk just to get one at, at the retail price because ahead of them are hundreds of people per store i guess who have a relationship with that store and are maybe buying other watches to sort of get a strong relationship with that store and or have bought watches in the past whatever it might be and they what they're looking to do is they, they sort of want to buy the watch at the sort of retail price and because no one else is able to do that they can sort of sell it immediately for a very handsome profit as a reseller they're not waiting five or ten years for the watch to go up in value they're sort of it selling it the next day and of course the minute you have that dynamic and this is what i think's happened is you'd almost be insane not to buy the watch if you could you know if you could buy a rolex submariner for eight thousand pounds and then sell it the next day for sixteen thousand i mean but, but normally what would happen in like a basic market situation if you're 
if you're Verdex, you're, you're the company manufacturing this, and there's such a high demand that outstrip supply, you just increase your prices, right, until you get to that equilibrium. So why doesn't that happen? That's what I've never kind of figured out. Um, it's a really, it is a, fa- it's a fascinating question. I think prices have been going up. I mean, it's and it's, you know, I think Rolex put a lot of their prices up around 10% this year, but right. nothing like the premiums we're seeing. I think if you look at a company like Rolex, it's an interesting one because if they were to put their prices up too high too soon, they would possibly find all the resellers just stop buying them. Mm. And you know maybe the real market price isn't as high as 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 it as it looks today. You know the prices that have been these sort of secondary prices that we're seeing. It's a very new thing. Who's to say? You know we have the recession next year. Interest rates go up, and you know actually the market gets back to where it was ten years ago. All of a sudden they look a bit silly for you know trying to double their prices or whatever it might be. So I can understand the cautiousness there that they're displaying but you're right i mean on paper it would probably be fairer if they've had higher prices and if you wanted one you could go in the shop and buy one rather than having to sort of maybe deal with some murky gray dealer that is maybe not even selling you a a real product it's a weird one and and just in the time that we've been talking about this over the last few years i think rolexes have what doubled tripled in, in the secondary retail price um, Absolutely, yeah. Uh, it used mad. to be. It, it is, mad. and I think if I were to look at, you know, what's driven that, and it's absolutely crazy what what's happening. Is a lot of the rises are in the last two years, and I think this is a this is the question of how sustainable is some of what we see. Mm. But I definitely think some of it's a response to inflation, and anybody that can get a sort of in demand steel Rolex watch at the retail price will get one. And I think, you know, people will pay, um, be happy to pay a modest premium to that. And I guess it's the question, well, what's a modest premium? But again, you know, you just got to think, well, how many, a lot of, you know, a lot of these watches now, you know, they're going for sort of in, in you know, $10,000 plus. And you're seeing a lot of watches go for $100,000 plus. And I guess the question is, or the observation is, there are a lot more people now sort of able and willing to spend that much on a watch than there were five years ago, 10 years ago. You know, and what's what's driven that? You know, what what's why is that? I don't think it's a case of you know, there's just a lot more profitable and successful companies now than there were then. I think there's there's more more to it than that. But you know, I think if I were to sort of look at watch driving, I think I think Instagram and the lockdown are a big thing. People just sort of sitting at home on their phone, looking at these things. You know, and I remember Hannibal Lecter said, you know, you covet what you see, and um, <laughs> I think. <laughs> People are, a lot more people are seeing these things a lot more often. You know, I mean, 15 years ago, you didn't a have really an good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and there is a whole shopper psychology of the more times you're exposed to a product, the the likelihood of you buying that product approaches one. You know, if you're exposed to it over and over and over again, so that that is a point. And I think financialization, which you know, what does that mean? But I think that is turning more things into sort of financial assets and or marketable assets than that is is a fact as well i mean again if you think if you start thinking of a watch less as a i'm spending money on something Hmm. but more as a i'm investing in something well the whole thing is turned on its head you know how many people would you know maybe on 30 40 50 pounds a year maybe as a salary 
would spend eight, ten thousand pounds on a watch. You know, it's hard to imagine that they would do that. And mm. you would have to say it's not a very sensible thing to do. They insure it, that's going to be very expensive. I and mean, that's every year. If they don't insure it and they lose it, that's, you know, a catastrophic loss yeah. for them. And just, you know, surely, you know, how have you got that much money, you know, to, to spend on something that's not very important in the, in the bigger scheme of things, you know, compared to a deposit for a flat or your rent or your food, whatever it might be. But if you say, well, actually, you're not spending that money, you're not dropping a third of your annual income on this, you're actually investing in something that's going to go up in value. So you're not spending the money. <laughs> <laughs> it's nothing to do with spending your it's access yeah, it's a saving or investment yes it, it's you know it's like if i buy if you buy shares in amazon or whatever or apple or something sensible or government bonds or whatever it might be then no one would think oh you know what an idiot yeah. he's put <laughs> yeah. he's put 10 grand into a savings account you know you wouldn't say that's daft but why you know so he said well what's the difference mentally if that's what what the guy's doing with, with buying a watch and i guess the nice thing is he gets to sort of walk around wearing a nice watch as well so maybe there's you can see why why a lot of people are doing that and again you know in the last few years anybody that's done that has sort of done well out of it mm. you know it's gone up in value and you know they what a brilliant financial brain they they've got but let's see how that fares in the next few years but i certainly think that sort of financialization is a factor where it's moved from a, a spending category to to an investing category you've seen the same thing in shoes right trainers and that become a huge market of their own asset class of their own I, I i was going to mention trainers jonathan and it's almost like sort of the watch market but for maybe people with a bit less money or a bit younger you know not, not into watches and so, some of them go for so much money it's been but you but you're right it's well, a different demographic right it's you were into the watches and the kind of mechanics and, and engineering of a of a well-engineered watch whereas i think some people are really into kind of sportswear and the style of shoes and who you know who the athlete was who wore them are they the air jordans from such and such which are like a limited and scarce in their supply and the new models come out you know once every year or two i don't know it's a similar no, mind and, psychology and, maybe and it, it absolutely is and i think it's this it, it's mind-boggling and i think it's oh it's not mind. it's just it's incredible i think it's a better word in terms of where we are today it's you know maybe a society where and it's very young people you know i've, I've sort of seen these some of these kids sort of queuing outside this these shops that sell these trainers that are you know investable or collectible whatever you want to call it mm. And, you know, I can't point the finger, you know, I sort of, you know, I spend my money on sort of nice watches or whatever else I might collect. So it's not a criticism, but it just seems to be that the idea of buying things and they're an investment has really taken off and it's creeping into more and more and more different areas. You know, you've seen handbags behaving very much like watches, mm, huge premiums. And <laughs> it's... You know, you don't get, I'm sort of reminded, you know, you don't get something for nothing. And you know, people think, oh, I'm buying this train. I sit there for a couple of years and it's worth double or I sit there for uh, six months and it's worth two or three times what I paid for it. And you kind of think, well, there's obviously no sort of real intrinsic value to a sort of trainer as a collectible, you know, any more than there is in a watch fundamentally. So what, how do these people all get their money back? You know, are they going to just be sitting there for 50 years with these trainers as happy that they've got it in their collection but 
if it's a financial asset, at what point can, point can they realise it to sort of you know, get the benefit of, of, of the value increases? I mean, at some point, they're, they're, they resemble a lot of the same characteristics as a kind of a multi-level marketing scheme or Ponzi or pyramid scheme, right? Because it relies on a growing number of people buying this this scarce commodity or, or asset which is why I, the trainers ones is interesting because i think with with watches what really surprised me is that people actually wear them <laughs> to be honest mm. whereas well, with yeah. trainers i know there is a kind of some people they just don't take them out of the box they're hermetically sealed almost like to to preserve them like um mm. almost like fine art or something versus a, a watch that maybe just wears better it, it, no it, 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 it's fascinating you know and what what drives that market and you know if someone said to me oh these are the trainers that I don't know, Spike Lee wore to the, the film premiere of, you know, I don't know, one of his films, or this is the the trainers that Michael Jordan wore or something like that. You think, okay, that's interesting. You know, and if someone said, oh, they're yours for 50 quid, I'd think, oh, yeah, maybe that's where, you know, that sounds like but then, a good But then deal. that's a kind of a, a what, yeah. that's a unique item, right? It is, there's only and yeah, and one of that. It, it, Absolutely. Yeah. And what am I buying? Am I buying the Air Jordans from 1985 or whatever, or am I buying the Michael Jordan history. Yeah, exactly. Um, like a memorabilia thing. But it, it just seems to me that there's a demand from, you know, youngsters, maybe. And I think it is a lot of young younger people. Maybe I'm showing my age calling them youngsters. <laughs> but young people in, in today's world to sort of have a collectible that they can put their money into and feel that it's going to grow in value. And at the same time, they get to sort of invest in something that's really interesting to them you know mm. and, and quite cool and fun and they can show their personality in but you know it's a sort of investment you just you do wonder how that sort of plays out and it just feels to me like quite bubbly and you know something that you know may not work out particularly well and i think for me the interesting thing is and you haven't seen a lot of comments about this but it's you know what is when you look at the watch market in particular but Definitely the handbag market, and I'm sure some of these trainers collectibles. You know what? What's driving that price? And absolutely, in the last sort of two, three, four years, as watches, handbags, etc., are seen as more assets, collectibles, etc., not just something that you buy to wear and, and discard when when you're done with them. Is you've seen a lot of resellers open and what's a reseller it's like you used to call it a secondhand shop but you know they don't like that phrase it's sort of i'm a reseller you know, they buy a luxury item from you and they sell it to someone else and what you've seen is you know there's so many of these have, have, have emerged in the watch industry you've got Watchmaster, you've got watch finder you've got chronext and you know there's dozens more in that in the handbag market you've got i think a business called luxury promise you've got you know, cellier there's, you know, there's one in France that's called Collector Square that seems mm. to sell everything. Yeah, there's all sorts of these in America. We'll have hundreds of them. And you've, and you've got a lot of independence as well. And a lot of these are VC-backed. Are they? Uh, absolutely. And, you, you know, yeah. you'd watch finders VC-backed. I think Luxury Promises is, is VC-backed. And you've, you've got others as well. And, you know, you sort of look at this and you think, well, okay, in the watch market, you know, there's, there's VC money at, Either it's at the margins or it's at the centre. Who knows how, how it is. But there is VC money going into the market to fund resellers. And, you know, th these people add value because if you're a watch owner, you've got more options when you sell it. So it's great. You know, they're a good thing. And if you're a buyer, 
these people should be investing money in staff to check that they're genuine watches and all the rest of it and you've got some confidence buying a second-hand Rolex or whatever, that it is what it says it is. So, mm. you know, so they're a good thing. It's absolutely not a bad thing. But when you look at what's happening to the prices, you've just had a real sudden influx of money. All these resellers, they, they need stock. Yeah, so they're they the ones buying website. them from the initial seller, initial owners, right? Absolutely. And in terms of how the market, what's happened in the last few years... If you would say, well, you've gone for a market say, with no resellers, which isn't the case, but let's just say that to a market with some resellers, all of a sudden you've had this period of time where you've needed to take stock out of the market and money has gone into the market to do that. You've just got an extra source of demand, haven't mm. you? And I think yeah, yeah. that's really pushing up prices. And the interesting thing as well is that the business model is very different for a reseller. If you look at a traditional you know, watch or handbag seller and if you take away the one you know the the brands that sell their own stuff but Mm. a retailer you know they get the watch or the handbag at wholesale price from the brand and you know they get quite a fat margin when they sell it to you that's retail you 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 buy low you sell high and the brand is happy because you know i said i need to pay for the store network and the staff and all that stuff so you know everyone's everyone's a winner but the reseller, they don't get the goods at the wholesale price. You know, they're not buying direct from the brand. So they're all having to fight with all the other resellers mm. to get the goods from you. And then they need to sort of sell it for even more than that. I mean, if you look at it logically, there shouldn't be a lot of profit in that because they're almost having to be top bidder in the market to get yeah. hold of it. And then they've got to somehow and then, like, take on all the they risk. Can <laughs> sell it to some other top bidder the next day or, or whatever it might be. So, And it doesn't quite well at that because I guess I would probably rather sell to them than than somebody else. Mm. I and therefore take a lower price because I guess if they're reputable, I'm not worried they're going to call me the next day and go, oh, you sold me a fake. I guess um, it acts I want the same money. as like car dealerships, right? But in car dealerships yeah. where you've got a depreciating asset versus this where you've got an potentially an appreciating asset it kind of works a bit weird it actually makes no sense when you think about it and i guess it's just one of those things that's really emerged as a force in the market Mm. and you know it's huge amounts of money flowing through these these businesses but it's it's emerged you know in the luxury market and in the watch market and in the handbag market that they've emerged and, and and they've changed it and i guess it's made people much more aware that they can sell the stuff they've got at a really good price Mm-hmm. and i think are they really a factor in driving the scarcity in the first place and you know not just stocking up but to, if you if there's a case you know there's a handbag or a watch that does sell for more than its list price if you're a reseller that's what you want but, but <laughs> and, also i mean in some cases and i'm just thinking out loud here they um they almost create a new market. The reason I asked you about the Grand Seiko watches, I think I sent you a, a video which actually was from WatchFinder on YouTube. They have their own YouTube channel. They review loads of watches. I had no idea they were a secondary watch marketplace. I just thought they were reviewing watches. And now I get fed them all the time. YouTube just seems to think I love watch- <laughs> watches. I'm constantly oh. getting these things. And now I'm like, oh, are they creating a new market? I mean, I don't, I don't have any fancy watches, but... Who knows if I keep getting exposed to this, suddenly I'm like being primed to think, oh, actually, I quite like watches. That's that's interesting. And then you know you're 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 mentally priming a much bigger audience, which which no, probably I, wasn't I there, right? 
because I wasn't the yeah, one shopping it's... around the jewelers and stuff looking for fancy watches, but I watched a bit of YouTube and it's clearly found me. So maybe that uh, creates absolutely. more demand. It, these resellers, you know, they range from very professional, very well funded people like Watchfinder to, you know, one man bands, pretty much not much more than an eBay account, frankly. But the, the resellers as a whole are hugely growing the market. Hmm. They, you know, they're providing more point of sale. They're pr- a lot of the times providing content. They are providing advice to people, you know, what to buy, some, you know, this, so maybe the higher end. And there is a bit of a community there. If you were to look at, say, Luxury Promise, for example, on the handbag side, they will, I think they have, you know, regular shows where they sell various bags on the show, but it's it's quite entertaining. It's quite live. It's not what a brand would do with, with their yeah. own stuff. And I think as well, you know, they grow their mailing lists. They can reach people. Maybe the rest of the industry can't. And I guess it's the fact that they're more accessible than some of the brands as well. You know, if they have a bag, it's there. You can buy it. It's not the case that, you know, if there's a Chanel or a Hermes or a Rolex watch, as we've said, you know, the, the most in-demand models, they're not available. God, you um, know, so you have to go to a reseller to get them. You know what? I think, I think we've, <laughs> I think we've just on, on the fly uncovered the entire model, the marketing model. Because so that watch finder video I sent you, the video that I had been pushed before it, and from not just them, but from a number of different channels, was all about the $100 Seiko, which is like, mm. you know, it's like the cheapest model one and why it's really good value for people starting out who can't afford a Swiss watch. And it, and it then compares it against like the higher end Seik, Grand Seikos and against the Rolexes. And you just see them. It's all from the same. They don't even sell it on their website, I don't think. But I think the model they're looking for is prime people who would normally never buy any watch like that and then prime them into getting a, the Seiko but for all the qualities and attention to detail and the appreciation of the mechanical side of it and the dials and the style and the almost like the finesse and, and brand awareness that comes with it and then maybe they get into that in their like 20s they're now on that wagon right that, that's their, what every retailer wants to do every brand wants to kind of like get people in and then when they start earning more money and getting promotions and everything else, they're, they're aspiring to the next level up. I feel like that's, um, God, that's literally their playbook because there's a million of those videos on YouTube about the $100 Seiko and how good it is. And I don't know no, now whether uh, it's any good. <laughs> Maybe it's just oh, to get well, you through the door. I, wow. I, and there's an element to that. And, you know, they will they'll sell you something, they'll buy it back and they'll sell it. So, you know, that's that the constant activity yeah. what, what they do. And, and I think... Um, yeah, this and remember that they make they don't get the wholesale margin, so they need to be probably three or four times as active as the yeah, retailer. Yeah, of course. Um, who's trying to elude an air of you know, mean, sort of exclusiveness? Okay, um, I'm going to hold this up and see if you can see it. But if it goes into there, you go. So these are all the the videos that come up around the hundred dollar <laughs> Seiko. There's so many, and they're all from the same place, all from the same ones that you're on about. You know, the $100 Rolex killer or Seiko or whatever it is. And it's and, remarkable. <laughs> it is. And actually, you're right. You know, the amount of content on YouTube and, you know, I, I don't really go on Instagram, but obviously, Sarah, but, but YouTube in particular, yeah, the amount of content that anybody in the world can access, they don't need to invest in a, a magazine or, or they, they literally... Just if you're interested, just watch it. It just gets you, queued up. Reviews, yeah. 
different reviews and comparisons and whatever it might be. And again, it's if you that's it's it's the if that's your interest, you can get very interested in it very quickly. Mm. And I think the other thing, and what I would just say, and it ties it together a little bit between the maybe the financial conditions we're in and the you know with the role of resellers and, and the role of money coming into the market. I was really struck a couple of months back, and the market certainly has cooled. Actually, interestingly, I think watch prices are sort of down five or ten percent um, in the pre in the resale market in the last month. And uh, you know, when we touch on what that might mean, but what really struck me a couple of months ago was, you know, I was sort of in a, a reseller. I won't name them. Sort of shop near, near my work, and I was just sort of killing a little bit of time and you know i had a look at one watch and i just sort of tried it on just just for fun and the the salesman said to me why don't i get it <laughs> and i was like well actually you know, i've got a, a similar one probably not 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 for me and he says ah oh. he said um and and for some content it was a rolex explorer and you know it retails for around i think five thousand pounds and it was for sale for about nine thousand pounds whoa just a context you know so again that's the pretty much the the secondary price for these things at the moment you cannot get one you can't go into the shop and get one so the only way you can buy one is through a reseller like watchfinder or an ebay or something like that but all at those sort of very inflated prices but mm. that's the background so it's not a complete shock or unexpected that he tells me you know it's it's nine thousand pounds but what happened next it did sort of shock me a little bit you know, I sort of said, not, not, not for me. And he said, ah, oh. he said, what a lot of, what, what, he didn't say what a lot of people, he said, what people are doing now is they're getting it on the interest-free credit for two years. Oh, wow. And which is a product these guys were offering. And in two years time, it will be worth more. And Ooh. what can go wrong? You know, <laughs> you either sell it and bank the difference or you, you know, you start, you pay it back. You know, they didn't really go into details, but you know, the sort of scales drop from my eyes because we've got a sort of VC-backed reseller getting money in to buy the stock, pushing the prices up. And then you've got the same company sort of offering interest-free loans for people to buy a watch oh, at wow. almost twice the list price because in two years' time, it'll be worth even more. It's not particularly difficult to see what could go wrong. Uh, <laughs> but... Yeah. <laughs> harder to see what could go right but it's safe to say the guy sort of punting this wasn't particularly concerned by any of that um, wow. I, I say. It, is it that different to you know the sort of stories we heard from 2007 you know mm. about the sort of u.s house price um, yeah yeah you know, with the um estate right. agents and everyone telling people the, the the same things right to just get on get on a housing yeah. ladder get a house it'll go up buy another one <laughs> a second house yeah same similar and, and just to put it in context jonathan i mean i think um you know people probably hear us talking about premiums and all the rest of it but you know we've spoken about this before but you know it clearly depends on what watch you're you know you're buying or looking at but it's for some color you know if we were to take the rolex daytona it's got a list price of eleven thousand six hundred. If you were to try and buy one of those sort of today, you couldn't go into the Rolex shop and buy it. It just wouldn't happen. You'd need a relationship of, of some sort. And otherwise, you, you can't get anywhere else. You can't get it from Tesco's. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you're forced to sort of go into this grey market, go to, you know, a Chronext or a Watchfinder or one of these guys 
and and buy it from them. And you know, last I looked, they were selling for around forty seven thousand. Yeah, that's a watchmaster.co.uk, dot co dot uk twenty twenty four thousand for ah. But is that the eleven six five zero zero ln? No. It, it, oh, wow. it's, yes. oh no, those are going for thirty five, thirty eight, forty. Oh, oh. well, prior to them. But again, that's a watch that's well interesting. A few weeks ago, that was going for forty seven. So oh. prices have fallen considerably in that time, but. You know, that was a watch that was that, that the Rolex thinks it's worth eleven thousand six hundred. Wow. Um and it's selling used for triple. Triple that. That's remarkable. And you're seeing some, you know, Audemars Piguet or, or Patek Philippe going sometimes four, five times the list price. And for some colour, it, it's a very recent thing. Back in January twenty one, the Daytona was sort of less than twenty thousand with these resellers so we've seen this boom in in just the last 12 months wow i i know we're running a bit over time but i had um a segue question that i did want to ask you about which was linked to all of this because you were mentioning if you were to buy the rolex you couldn't walk in without a prior history or you know relationship with with the the seller to kind of almost credentialize yourself but what, what do you think about luxury and i guess iconic consumer brands moving into the web 3 and nft space because you've seen it with adidas adidas have been very prominent doing these kind of uh, metaverse nft web 3 partnerships and they've been very open and active in that space and you've also seen it with with gucci in particular doing some very interesting collaborations with big nft projects and one of the things we've covered on the pod- podcast but what, what are your thoughts on that because um the behaviors are similar the psychology is similar it, it is i think you've got to sort of look at you can absolutely see why they, they would get into that you know there's a lot of fast money yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the whole thing around nft is is literally you know that it's exclusivity in the sense there are only so many of of it you know it's it's non-fungible so by its nature it's exclusive and i guess luxury brands are largely around exclusivity and successful ones are very good at managing that managing their prices and maybe managing access to their products and i guess you can see why they're interested in it Mm. i think the skill set is very different to what they're good at and i think for me until you have a lot of a large number of people who are concerned with how they look if whatever that means sort of online i don't know how really interested they'll be and how much it will develop their core customer which would be sort of wealthy people Mm. um, or people access to money anyway would need to sort of be concerned about how somewhere metaverse do they have the right tokens of exclusivity hanging from them and until people are worried about that i don't think the market's really there for 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 the luxury brands to exploit that space but but i I actually think it might be the other way around a a bit like what we were saying about the seiko hundred dollar watch that gets advertised to me on youtube or kids going out and buying you know investing in trainers because they saw it on instagram so I can tell you the experience that I had the other day. You know, I've been talking about the 10KTF Beeple project set in New Tokyo with Wagmi-san. He kind of crafts these different items that you can wear in, in their metaverse. They did a partnership with Gucci. And it's the first time I've actually, I 
participated in that partnership thing and ended up with a Gucci NFT. Don't have any Gucci real clothes, but have a Gucci NFT. But following that, on their Discord server, they then reached out to people who've got that Gucci NFT and said, oh, you can qualify for pre-early access, basically, to a limited edition partnership that it turned out they were doing with Adidas. They actually did a Gucci Adidas, real physical clothing, items, bags, whatever. And they were like, oh, if you if you register your wallet here, then and then and your email and other other details, then an agent will contact you and start talking about it. And I didn't go down that route because, quite frankly, I'm not really bothered by owning real Gucci things. But it's I think that's that's the interesting model, right? A lot of people in a demographic that just don't care or own real Gucci stuff, but have through whatever channels ended up with this NFT. And it kind of gives you uh, a ticket to the club to get early access to something that no one can, you can't get that in a store. I'm sure some people would be yelling at me, why didn't I go and get this like rare Gucci Adidas partnership thing? Cause it's a limited edition, whatever, but not for me, but I think I think they're accessing a different demographic, but through that NFT angle, maybe, for now. It, it could be, like, and I guess this is probably why they're spending the time and the bandwidth looking at it, because, mm. you know, if I were running Gucci or Prada or Celine or, or whatever, I'd probably be worried about how do I make sure I'm relevant and, and sort of reaching the... The next wave the of... Next wave the, of the younger yeah. crowd and you know traditional routes to market are changing and i can i can see that i guess looking at their core customer base today i don't think many of them will have even heard of discord probably and if you were to think about it sort of if you were to step back and say well if you've got scarcity the scarcity is of the luxury good, the handbag or the watch. And if you, how do you sort of solve the scarcity? I guess if you're traditionally, they give their best customers access to the scarcest goods. Mm. And, you know, that's quite a nice thing because you need to spend a lot with them to get the best stuff in some ways. If they're sort of giving access to people in a different way to that, do they people effectively pay for that? I mean, that's slightly different business model. Um, makes sense in a lot of ways, but it's a different way of doing things. Does it alienate their customer base and, you know, all sorts of things like that. So do you almost have two routes to the, the scarce product? I'm not sure if that quite works. Mm. It'd be interesting to see, but, I think. But but it was one of the things I, I still think, and it may change if we end up in a full-blown recession, but this was the year that I thought would be big brands entering NFT world. And I've seen it in terms of like, you see the jobs advertised everywhere where they're looking for Web3, Metaverse, you know, ad buzzwords in here, job posts for basically every company out there, but they have no clue what they're doing. But I think based on what you were saying about watches earlier and the handbags and everything else, I think the the parallels are definitely there for big brands to, to move in and just employ the same tactics but for a different generation over a different medium. That's kind of what it seems like. Yeah, uh, and what I would say is as well, I mean, when we think about Web 3, let, let's think about Web 2 or even Web 1. A lot of these luxury brands, you know, they've all got websites mm. um, 
although I'm sure some of them probably think, can we be more exclusive by not having one? Um, <laughs> but you, you would be surprised at how many luxury brands you cannot buy their products on their website. Oh, yeah. I, you I have imagine. to go to a store. And yeah. you think if in some way, <laughs> what's the point of the website? I mean, it's literally, you know, what, 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 there is a point and people, you know, browse. But if you think if they're so unengaged with the sort of the internet that you can't actually click and buy something and get it delivered to your house. And, you know, that's, again, it's a, an area where resellers can actually add value. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you think the idea that they're sort of going to give more access through web three than they gave through web two, um, and it's going to be anything more than just branding, however it's dressed up, maybe that's not going by past experience. Yeah. I mean, it's probably a, a topic for a follow-up interview but i've noticed on on discord a lot of nft projects especially the ones linked to big brands are now doing exclusive in real life events so it is kind of weird that they've there's a big uh, pull people into the in real life events in certain geographies so like la or um, new york or you know prominent capital cities they're definitely trying to do those meetups which is a, a strange strange behavior but i don't know how successful those are anyway we've overrun quite a bit thanks so much for taking the time and and for being our first interview as well not a problem jonathan my absolute pleasure to uh, to join you and uh but yeah really, really enjoyed it yeah hopefully hopefully helpful it, it is it's really helpful and uh, i always like having debates with you even if it's in long form over whatsapp or whatever so no it's it's really good thanks for taking the time i really really appreciate it yeah happy to uh jump on again no great good to speak jonathan started during lockdown needed something to do they looked at each other they said hey i like talking to you and so